Hello and welcome to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Marco Visconti. And my name is Rose Eva Forks Jenkins. We will be your hosts for today's episode of Adam and Eve. Thanks for tuning in. On this week's episode, we're going to engage with the topic of queer women's health. Rosiva sat down with queer advocate and health researcher Stephanie Booth to discuss this issue. She also specially selected a playlist of tracks by queer women artists. First up, we have Ma Rainey, who is one of the first recorded blues singers, and who's often referred to as the mother of blues. Her 1928 album was called The Prove It To Me Blues, and it contains songs that described what it was like to be a lesbian during a time when it would have been considered illegal. Here's the title track from that album. Enjoy. Last night, with a crowd of my friends, when thin women, cause I don't like no men. It's true, I wear color and a tie. Make the wind blow all the while. Welcome back to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR. My name is Marco Visconti. And my name is Rose Eva Forks Jenkins. On today's show, we're discussing queer women's health and identities. We just heard the Prove It To Me Blues by Ma Rainey, an American blues singer who sang about being a lesbian in the late 1920s, when doing so was still illegal. Before we jump into our discussion on queer women's health, we thought we should define what we mean when we use the term queer women. Essentially, the word queer is an umbrella term for sexual and gender minorities who are not heterosexual or not cisgender, or neither. This includes women who identify as trans, bisexual, lesbian, non-binary, two-spirit, and questioning. Queer has a political connotation as it can be used to describe identities that go against a heteropatriarchal norm and cultural binaries. It's important to note that while queer is often used as a blanket term for all non-straight or non-cisgender people, not everyone is comfortable identifying with the word or reclaiming it from its original pejorative context. To talk about the subject of queer women's health, I had a conversation with LGBTQ health community advocate Stephanie Booth. I will warn everyone that I am lucky enough to know Stephanie on a personal level and have the joy of interacting with her on a weekly basis in a leadership program we're both involved in called Next Up. So this interview came out to be a little bit more like an informal back and forth conversation. So just a warning that we talk about sexual health and that it disclose some of my own history. My name is Stephanie Booth uh, and I am here today to talk about uh, the health of LGBTQ women. Uh, I'm very excited. This is a topic I'm very passionate about. Um, So the background on me as a human being, um, I was raised rurally and uh, was always very interested in volunteering um, and always thought I'd be a physician or involved in healthcare in some way. Um, I got my Bachelor of Science in biology and um, even after that was still thinking I'd be involved in clinical medicine in some way. Um, However, after working at a clinical environment uh, for a year after I finished my BSc, I realized I hated clinical environments. I didn't like the tight timelines and that sort of thing, and I was more interested in health from a larger area. Um, Around that time in my life, I was also doing lots of work around LGBTQ activism and advocacy. 
Uh, and so I went into my master's of public health uh, in epidemiology. Now, Roseva, do you know what epidemiology is? I do not. I wish I could say that I did, but is it the study of viruses? Oh, that's pretty close. Most people, when they hear epi, they think it is to do with epidermis and skin. Uh, but no, so epidemiology is um, the kind of the root word there is similar to epidemic. So it's the study of the spread of disease in populations. Um, and for my master's degree in epidemiology, my population that I was interested in is the LGBTQ population. And so um, I've done a variety of work through there. So not only academic, but also continued doing volunteer and community-based work. Um, so I've been involved with volunteering for Camp Firefly. Um, I do some LGBTQ health work through the Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry, a student group called the Sexual and Gender Advocacy Initiative, which puts on an LGBTQ health conference. Uh, and so a lot of the work in my master's was focused on LGBTQ health, um, more so specifically for women. Uh, and now I am graduated. Uh, which is nice. It felt like I was in school for a long time uh, and I work at the government um, doing opioid policy. But in my spare time, I also do a lot of community-based work um, and advocacy around LGBTQ health um, and try and keep um, bridging the kind of gap that there is between academia and understanding population dynamics and actually how that affects communities and um, making sure that queer women specifically understand some of the risks that they face and uh, trends that we see in health in queer female populations. So when I think of health, what does that make you think of? When I think of health, I think of specifically like something that's gone wrong within like my health or there's something that I need that's broken, they need to get fixed. So I go see a healthcare professional to fix that problem. Yeah, that's really common. And I think that's definitely the narrative we have in, in I guess, Western culture about what health is. It's really um, about the physical body. And when we're talking about health, it's really from a deficit point of view. So if something needs to be fixed or something has gone wrong. Um, I do a lot of other work with vaccines and infectious disease. And that, I think, is more so in the field where people think of health, where you catch a cold or you break a bone and it needs to be fixed. Um, but especially as researchers and people who work in the field of public health, we're realizing more and more the importance of um, moving away from what we call the biomedical uh, model of health, which is essentially saying that health is just what's in the physical body. And um, talking about some of the other things that affect people's health, like um, the social social aspects, environmental aspects, um, which we then kind of look to more theoretical and sociological models um, around health, looking at what we call social determinants of health, so social factors that affect someone's health, um, or other factors like biopsychosocial models, um, environmental social mo social models. So looking at the um, things outside of ourselves that are impacting our health and the way we move through the world. So as a queer woman, how does that impact my health specifically? All right. So I think it would be easiest for us to kind of talk about specific um, health deficits, we call them. So um, differences between heterosexual and uh, queer women in terms of health outcomes and then talk about some of the reasons why. Um, so a lot of research that has been done, um, I mean, one thing that's hard to do when you do population research is you have to have a population that is similar enough that you can compare it to something else. So we do see certain health outcomes for lesbian women, bisexual women, trans women. Um, but one thing that seems consistent throughout all those groups um, are increased rates, so an increased um, likelihood of mental health-related disorders, uh, which can include depression, different phobias, anxiety disorders, um, 
Can you think of any reasons why that might be? I think of then in the social aspect of that. Like yeah. Moving through the world as a marginalized population, if you have more pressures pushing down on you, that then affects your mental health, which affects your physical health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so um, that's one of the reasons why we often see that um, queer women are more likely to have um, mood disorders or various mental health um, disparities is because of those social pressures coming down. Um, and so, you know, being under constant stress and the stress of being a minority and a person who moves through the world in a different way definitely does cause people to have um, mental health issues um, and especially to not be able to um, get help for mental health issues because of um, homophobia or transphobia that exists within the healthcare system, um, as well as various social aspects that queer women have, which may include unsupportive families or trouble, you know, having those social circles and friends because of um, their identity. So, um, like, that's one example of we see this outcome and it has social tie-ins. It's not just about, um, you know, someone's physical body being affected, it's other things. Um, So another thing that we see that is more common in Um, specifically lesbian and bisexual women, is an increased likelihood of drinking and smoking. Any ideas on that one? Well, I think about myself going to the (laughs) gay club. Yeah. And when I go to the gay club, there is quite a large instance of drinking and smoking. Yeah, and I I love that that was your first instinct to say that because I do um, essentially LGBTQ health 101 sessions for Um, a lot of healthcare students like nurses or social workers and generally when I'm asking these questions to a group to like a room that's largely of straight people they're like they have no idea and then there's always someone who's like oh because you're out at the club or um, so especially and this is something we see in queer men too is um, this higher likelihood of smoking and drinking and that kind of has historical roots in the fact that the only place that queer people could ever really be together was in spaces that were associated with bars and that is still true from uh, as today Um, as well as smoking and drinking as something that people use as a coping mechanism so again the stresses the mental health outcomes related to um, needing to use substances but the numbers are quite staggering so um, one survey of um, heterosexual lesbian and bisexual women found that um, over one-third of bisexual women reported smoking, um, either um, being like a current smoker or smoking a lot, um, compared to about 28% of lesbian women and 17% of heterosexual women. So that's almost twice as many bisexual women compared to heterosexual women in one study who reported smoking, which is a lot higher. Um, And then you think of the services that are available for smoking cessation is they're not necessarily targeted for queer women. I mean, they're kind of just general programs. They're not necessarily able to address the underlying factors that we have about um, smoking, you know, to like fit in in cultural senses, smoking to, um, you know, get over stress, that sort of thing. And so we see these outcomes and we're not seeing health services that match. We're not seeing delivery for um, healthcare services for queer people that are matching the outcomes that we see. Um, In terms of physical health, one thing that is um, very common specifically in lesbian women is a decreased um, preventative care, specifically in terms of breast cancer and cervical cancer. So, Rosiva, have you gotten a pap smear before? 
In my life, yes. yes. <laughs> I've had the pleasure of having many pap smears, but I'm always curious as like how often that should happen. Yeah, and so the guidelines in Alberta did just change. Um, and so please don't um, take this as medical advice. There should be like a little caption underneath that's like the really quick thing like, this is not medical advice. This is not the advice of a provider. Um, so to my best knowledge, currently in Alberta, the um, cervical cancer screening guidelines, so when you should be getting a pap test or a pap smear as it's called, um, is if you essentially, if you have sex before the age of 25, you should get one when you are 25 years old or three years after that. So if you um, do not have a sexual debut or are not at risk of um, having cervical cancer related sex uh, until you're 28 then you don't need it then that was different um i think before then it was you needed a pap smear three years after your sexual debut um and again these terms are very much meant um and the guidelines are reflective of heterosexual sex so essentially the first time you lose your virginity from a penis um but are not inclusive of queer women um, and so one specific thing that I have done in terms of research is I was interested in the policies around cervical cancer screening in Alberta and whether they were reflective of language that would make sense to queer women. And so um, I did a policy analysis from um, different documents uh, like that were meant to be read by different audiences, so documents that were meant for physicians, nurses, and then the public, and was looking at the way they were describing um, you know, who needed a pap smear? Because that's a common thing. I think that young women who have heard of pap smears, they wonder and you Google it. And a lot of them either totally lacked language that was specific to lesbian or bisexual women. Um, they didn't use terms like queer or having sex with another female or having sex with anyone, essentially. And some of them even were reporting on very old um kind of views that you only need a pap smear and you're only at risk of cervical cancer if you have had sex with a man, which we know is untrue. Um, women who have sex with women may be more likely of getting cervical cancer or HPV, human papillomavirus, um, from having sex with another woman. But these, again, aren't reflected in guidelines. Um, and then this affects um, the amount of women who are getting um, pap smears. So in some studies, they say about three quarters of all women um, have gotten a pap smear um, in an age appropriate sense, but less than two thirds of lesbian women specifically. Um, the thing with bisexual women is because, um, I mean, if bisexual women are having sex with men concurrently or previously, they again might have those wheels turning in their head that they have had sex with a man, therefore they need a pap smear. But for lesbian women or other women who have never had sex with a man, they aren't necessarily getting those cues the same way. Um, and so in terms of sexual health as well as preventative health, those things are much less common um, and not taken up as much as they should be for lesbian and bisexual women. And you said there was a higher likelihood of getting HPV in queer women. Do you know exactly why that is? Part of the reasons um, why uh, queer women specifically may be more likely to acquire HPV um, is essentially because um, some of them are trans-related to actually having sex. So um, many queer women are, queer women generally compared to straight women, um, may be more likely to have an earlier age of sexual debut. Um, they may be more likely of ever having forced sex or rape, um, which again, if you're having unprotected sex, you may be more likely to get um, viral, uh, essentially viruses. Um, queer women also, especially when having sex with other women, often don't 
know that they need to use protection and that there are ways to protect yourself and be safe. And so uh, a combination of those, so um, having unprotected sex, having more sex, having earlier sex, um, can all be attributed to actually um, acquiring HPV. And then HPV turning into cervical cancer, um, there are a variety of factors that can influence that, including um, some factors around um, queer women, again, not getting the screening that they need, so not catching cervical cancer or HPV in an early stage, um, a higher likelihood of smoking or drinking, which can be attributable to cancer, um, as well as some indication that queer women, specifically lesbian women, may be more likely to be obese or overweight, which can be attributable to some cancers as well. You're listening to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR. My name is Marco Visconti, and we just heard the first half of Rosiva Fork Jenkins' conversation with LGBTQ health advocate Stephanie Booth. In this first portion of the interview, they discussed Alberta's health guidelines and how they do not have inclusive language when it comes to women who have sex with women, or when it comes to folks who do not fit into a gender binary. Stephanie uses the term sexual debut as opposed to the harsher and more problematic term, losing your virginity. In the next half of their conversation, Rosiva and Stephanie talk about the impact that body politics can have on queer women's health. Let's take a listen. So just so I get that clear, uh, queer women or lesbian women are more likely to be overweight? Yeah, and so that's one thing that's really debated a lot in research. And so there are some studies that show that lesbian women may be more likely to be obese or overweight. Um, Often that's based on the BMI scale, so body mass index. Um, But also it has some really interesting sociological ties. Um, And it is argued quite a bit, again, in the literature. So um, one reason, um, essentially for people who do believe this and say that this is true, why lesbian women specifically may be more likely to be overweight it has historical ties to feminism, um, especially the feminism we see in the 60s, the rejection of the male gaze, wanting to have your body look a certain way um, and not wanting to essentially tie into the constraints and pressures that society puts on bodies, which is, again, influenced by the male gaze. Um, part of it is cultural as well um, in terms of lesbian women wanting to be visible to each other. So um, I, even in the media, you know, we have this certain image of what a lesbian woman looks like. Um And so part of that, again, is because of feminism wanting to look a certain way or not look a certain way um, and also showing yourself as a queer woman. So what that looks like. Hmm. Yeah, in my mind, I find that interesting because being a queer woman, not having the shame of being overweight. I don't think that that shame necessarily works in other people as well. Like even if you're more ashamed of your weight, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will end up being more healthy. I think that shame then just becomes like a negative mental health you know, that's how it manifests itself as to manifesting itself and like actually being more healthy. Yeah, queer body politics are very interesting. Um, so it's quite a bit more conclusive, I think, um, when we're talking about queer men, especially gay men, that they're more likely to be bulimic, anorexic, or have eating disorders. And that has to do kind of with a similar thing of hypermasculinity, um, as well as the way that gay men's interact with each other is uh, different than the way um, queer women interact with each other. So with gay men, there's often this like idealized perfection, whereas with queer women, it's this sort of comfort, love ideal and about like loving your body and celebrating your body and your body not needing to look a certain way, um, which is really interesting, I think. Um, But again, it's something that's debated quite a bit within the literature. 
Um, and I mean, even speaks to the stereotypes we see in media. There's this kind of idea of queer women as being women who are, um, you know, a little bit overweight, short hair. But then there's also this narrative of women who are, quote unquote, like butch, like go to the gym, like muscular, etc. And so um, it's interesting to see how research may or may not reflect um, the narratives that are seen in the media or our expectations of queer women's bodies. I'm also wondering, um, in your own fields of research, in terms of queer women and epidemiology, like Mm -hmm. where those two fields kind of intersect for you? Yeah, so I'm really interested, um, and I think like a lot of queer people, as well as even a lot of straight people, I always wonder about like, like how many people are gay? You know, we hear all these different things from Kinsey saying it's one in 10 to different studies that get picked up by the media saying it's it's X, Y, Z. Um, and so that's one thing I'm really interested in is um, how can we get a conclusive, you know, picture of what the queer community looks like? Um, and so, yeah, I'm really interested in um, kind of aspects around like how do we ask people what their sexual identity is because sexual identity sexual orientation is very complicated um, and there's very different ways to ask that so even if I was to ask you questions on essentially what do I I could ask you a question how do you identify I could ask you um have you had sex with women have you had sex with women in the past year in the past three years in the past five years have you ever been attracted to women have you ever fantasized about women like those are all very different questions which are going to get different answers from queer people and I think in some ways it can be a little bit traumatizing and hard for people to have their identity broken down like that um and yeah and so i'm really interested about the population how we go about getting that information um as well as the potential benefits and risks that are associated with having that information mm-hmm. and i'm also curious once we get that information let's say we would know exactly what those numbers are mm-hmm. how would we then provide more services to those folks well i think one thing that would help is the advocacy behind it. So if we're able to conclusively say, you know, 7%, for example, of Albertans identifies LGBTQ, we can say, you know, we do need culturally competent services for these people. So there are culturally competent um, or services specifically designed for um, other quote unquote minority groups, um, which just means that we are um, making service and designing services that are specific. So um, for example, one thing, it, w- it was identified in Edmonton that um, men who have sex with men were wanting to get STI testing, but they wanted it in a way that was safe and they, f- they feel comfortable and that there was time specifically for them. And so now there is a specific time slot in Edmonton where men who have sex with men can get STI testing. A lot of that was from being able to identify that there was the need and then being able to lobby and essentially get that. So I think if we're able to have a better idea of how many people are queer, what some of the outcomes are for their health, being able to actually understand what is what are the real things that we're looking at. We're able to better um, identify where we can allocate money, um, how like budgeting can work, um, and what services we can do. Um, so I, I really love the idea of this because it not only ties into epidemiology, population science, but also advocacy and policy um, further down the road. So a specific outcome might look like um, an LGBTQ-specific clinic in Edmonton or um, services specifically for LGBTQ women who um, are interested in fertility services or um, specifically women who have sex with women, um, STI testing services, mental health services, etc. Welcome back to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR. My name is Marco Visconti. And my name is Rose Eva Forks-Jenkins. 
We just finished listening to the second half of my interview with LGBTQ health advocate, Stephanie Booth. So, Rosiva, how do you feel about the word queer? Yeah, I guess I would use the term queer to identify as well as bisexual. Either of those terms sound right to me. Mm -hmm. I'm the same way. I mainly identify as a gay man, but I'm okay being calling myself queer at the same time. Uh, It's funny, I've never really thought about in what context I would use different words. I think I use queer more out of uh, solidarity with other groups within the LGBTQ community as a way of saying like we, even though I don't have the same experience as someone who is non-binary or trans or lesbian, for example, um, I'm still connected to those groups through our um, our rejection of like what is considered normal, or <laughs> and through and through a, a, an empathy that we have for each other, that our identities are persecuted still. Um, so I think that's I think that's mainly why I still identify as queer. What's interesting about the word queer is that for some people that is just what their identity is. They they don't want to be known as um, straight or gay or anything other than queer. Um, and I, I don't know if that sometimes overlooks like, and I, I wonder what the, like the line between questioning and queer sometimes is. Cause there are people who just know they're not straight <laughs> and queer is like the most comfortable word for them at the same time. That's such a, yeah, interesting because an LGBTQ, does the Q can either stand for queer or questioning, or mm-hmm. sometimes there's two Qs to, like, um, yeah, make a distinction between the yeah. two of them? I've n- and I've never heard anyone say, like, oh, you shouldn't call yourself queer unless that is that is your whole identity. So I think it's interesting in that there are people who, it's it's both general but can be specific at the same time. Like, sometimes I find I catch myself seeing queerness as a spectrum, and I, like, question myself and thinking, like, am I queer enough? <laughs> like, have I had enough experiences yeah. with women to consider myself queer? And it was really validating the other day. I had a friend who was talking to me about his gay experiences and saying, you know, queer experiences, but kind of turned to me and said, oh, but not that that's any less valid <laughs> than you being bisexual. Yeah. And that was just really, like, beautiful and, like, reaffirming <laughs> for me to just be like, yeah, it's not about how like the number of experiences that you've had yeah about how you feel and how you identify Mm -hmm. for me it's also sometimes tied to the way that I look as well because I I totally hear what you're saying like I sometimes feel inadequate in my own queerness and sometimes it um, I think for women too this can be a bigger issue in that like from the surface from the outside people just project straightness onto you because maybe you're feminine presenting um, and people just assume like you couldn't possibly <laughs> be queer. And so that ties into it at the same time. And then you start second guessing yourself when you try to enter queer spaces and you're wondering, are people applying those same assumptions and filters on me? Um, so I think it's both tied to experience and then also like there's a queer look, I think, in the mainstream media right so 100 percent. i mean not in mainstream media but like even for myself like, just in everyday some, life if yeah. someone has a septum piercing i'm like uh-huh yeah i see you and sometimes it feels like there has to be one type of experience at, at the same time like what you were saying like someone can be bisexual and maybe never never like have only been in like relationships with people of different genders there's still like 
someone could judge that and say, oh, you haven't had a queer experience, but like <laughs> your whole life is your queer experience <laughs> if you're a queer person, you know? <laughs> and that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode on queer women's health. Have an excellent adamant evening. Adam and Eve, the spoken word project of CGSR FM 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta. And our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. We produce this week's show in the studios of CGSR on Treaty 6 territory. We are grateful to be on Blackfoot, Nakota Sioux, Soto, Métis, and Papa Chase Cree territory. For more information on our program and to send us any feedback, please visit our website, adamandeevecjsr.wordpress.com. We're always looking for more volunteers to help out, so if you're interested in learning any aspect of radio production, just get in touch.